This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we discuss Mardi Gras costumes, hair, and makeup. We learn how Mardi Gras Indian chief Monk Boudreau sews his suit and check in with a family that's been decorating kings and queens for generations. But first... In 2017, the crew of Arminius celebrated its 50th anniversary. While Arminius is just one of a handful of gay crews today, decades ago there were dozens. They even joined together to host the Gay Carnival Ball back before the widespread acceptance of the LGBTQ community. Today we go back to the archives for a 2017 episode of the Tripod Podcast, where NPR's Lane Kaplan-Levinson tells us about the lost history of gay carnival. As you see, this is my husband's giant flamingo he'll be riding in on. Barrett DeLong Church is showing me a Mardi Gras float in the crew of Armenia's den. Armenius is an all-male gay crew, and it celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. I met Barrett, this year's crew captain, at their den the day before their big ball. This year's theme? Novelle Orleans, 300 Years of Fabulous. Obviously what I should have called tripod. Oh, tomorrow's going to be incredible. And it was. I was there. The ball was held at Mardi Gras World. Hundreds of people showed up, many in black tie, to see these flamboyant costumes in action. People sat in tuxes and gowns at tables, picking at cheese plates and pounding drinks, as crew members pranced around the space, one by one, blowing kisses to the cheering crowds from inside their flamingos, streetcars, giant spider costumes, you name it. When the queen came out, rose petal-like confetti fell from the ceiling. It was a sight to behold. Armenius is one of just a handful of gay crews that still hold an annual ball. But decades ago, at one given time, there were over 20 gay crews. These crews and crew members pioneered this art form, the gay carnival ball. Back when it was essentially a crime. Gay men have been getting together and celebrating carnival for a long time. We just didn't know about it. Howard Smith is the author of Unveiling the Muse, the Lost History of Gay Carnival in New Orleans. He lived here for years and was an active participant in the gay community and gay carnival scene. His book was published in 2017, and it's the first comprehensive history of gay carnival. Someone had to do it. You know, I I did it, but... In the earliest written record of Carnival in New Orleans back in 1730, a young French clerk named Marc-Antoine Caillot described dressing up as a shepherdess, quote, complete with beauty marks and plumped up breasts. Whether he called it drag or not, that's what these 18th century party animals were doing. Then, in 1805, a new anti-sodomy law passed. Gay culture went largely underground, and so did gay carnival. Howard Smith says you couldn't hold hands with someone of the same sex, you couldn't dance with someone of the same sex, you couldn't dress in drag. But there was one exception, Mardi Gras Day. You can't arrest someone because they're in costume on Mardi Gras Day. And so they gated up. The first gay crew in New Orleans formed in 1958 in the wake of McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare, a witch hunt against gay people in the government. The crew called itself the Crew of Yuga, And Howard says this may just be lore, but it's possible that Yuga was a play on asking shorthand if someone was gay. Well, you know, (laughs) 
You gay? You I go- don't. You guy? <laughs> I, I, you gay? Um. Secret language to find out safely if someone else was gay. You go? You gay? I hope it's true. I I hope hope it's it's true. true. I hope it's true. (laughs) Yeah. Safe words and secret languages, that's part of what these crews were. More than just entertainment, they were places of refuge for the gay community and a place for networking, much like benevolent societies and social aid and pleasure clubs. Here's where you found your doctor, your lawyer, if you were lucky, your employer, and your friends. And so one of the first big challenges for the crew of Yuga was finding a physical safe space for their first ball. They held it in one of the crew members' homes on Carrollton Avenue. It was held there again the next year, in 1959, and over 200 people showed up. It was clear Yuga needed to find a real venue. They bounced around for the next couple years and then landed a spot in Metairie. That sort of worked for a couple years, but then they had the raid. The raid. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kathan-Levinson. Talk to me about the raid that happened. This was the fifth ball for the the crew of Yuga? Yeah, fifth and final ball, yeah. 1963. Well, the police received a phone call from an irate citizen supposedly complaining about this lewd party that was going on there. The Jefferson Parish police came in full force. Police on horseback, the canine unit, all of it. Uh, almost 100 people were arrested. Their names are printed in the newspaper, which was a point of shame for so many years. Many of them were in the closet at the time. Some were married and had families. When Howard interviewed the head of Yuga about the incident, he said, We were terrorized. Uh, a lot of us lost our jobs, and we just we couldn't handle it. The crew folded. But another gay crew had formed, the crew of Petronius, and they continued on despite the fears of being raided the way Yuga was. They just needed to find a place where they knew they'd be safe. And who would have thunk it'd be the St. Bernard Civic Auditorium in Chalmette? And you have the St. Bernard police there directing traffic, helping these drag queens, you know, that with these costumes across Judge Perez Drive. Now, that's something you don't see often because, you know, that's... Uh, that's not the most liberal no, <laughs> parish. No, I was going to say that the fact that Chalmette became the mecca for gay carnival balls is just insane to me. It's insane. Legend has it that somebody had dirt on somebody, and so Petronius was able to blackmail and pay their way in. And once they got their foot in the door, more crews emerged, knowing there was a safe space for their balls. And everybody went to everybody's balls. Diane DiMaselli. I mean, you had to have your tuxedo or tuxedos. Lou Bernard. Twice on a weekend, and then you'd have till the next weekend to get the damn thing clean. Michael Hickerson, a.k.a. Fish. You'd have to use Febreze. <laughs> These three have all known each other for over 30 years, and they're all former gay crew founders. We met at the friendly bar in the Marigny where they reminisced. Here's Diane. A lot of cities, you know, they put everything into gay pride because that's what they have. Well... We have body crop. She co-founded the crew of Ishtar, the only gay woman's crew. Women weren't allowed in crews, and many didn't even feel welcome in gay bars. There was a big gender divide in the gay community. So Ishtar formed in 1978 as a space for women to participate in gay carnival. Ishtar was the only woman's crew, period. Michael Hickerson, a.k.a. Fish, also founded a crew called Polyphemus. He did so after an experience he had joining a different gay crew called Amun-Ra. When I went to join the crew of Amun-Ra, 
a third of the organization left. They left because Fish is black. This is one of many experiences Fish can recall being discriminated against within the gay community, even in the friendly bar where we sat talking. He remembers an after party that took place decades ago right here at Friendly Bar after the crew of Amon Ra's ball. It was the president and the reigning queen. They were in that bathroom, and I opened the door to go pee. And the president said, close that door, nigga. This was the late 80s. Fish was on the cruise board. I don't care how much you felt you were accepted and stuff. Mm-mm. There was always that word. There was always that word. Despite the problematic gender and racial dynamics within the gay community, everyone I spoke to still saw the 80s as the quote-unquote golden age. Gay Mardi Gras was hitting its peak. There were over 20 crews, each with dozens of members. The New Orleans gay scene and gay Mardi Gras was thriving. But suddenly, Diane told me, this golden age turned into the dark age with AIDS. Guys just died, I mean, every weekend it was just on and on and on. I mean, I would walk down the street and pass up somebody, and they would come back and say, Diane, you didn't, you, you didn't say hello? And it was because I didn't even recognize him. Crews were literally dying, and all the fundraising that had been going into costume glory was suddenly being reallocated for AIDS research, medication, hospice. And when crews did continue to spend money on lavish balls, they were criticized. Lou Bernard. The crew of Olympus got heavily criticized for raising money for people to come watch us wear beautiful costumes and stuff. And somebody said, don't you think you should be raising that money for AIDS? I said, darling, don't you think the living still have to enjoy life? They, they said, how, how can you even think of letting people raise money so you can put your goddamn costume on when people are dying? And I said, well, darling, not everybody's dying. Lou said it was an act of resistance to continue to hold the balls, to get dressed up and live life. Still, he estimates that AIDS wiped out gay carnival crews by about 50% in just a few years. And many of the survivors decided they needed to save their money in case they too became HIV positive. Gay carnival never bounced back after the impacts of the AIDS epidemic. A long list of roughly 20 crews dropped to just a few. Today, only four of the original crews are still active. A few new crews have started up in the past few years, but Diane, Lou, and Fish think that Gay Carnival may be on its way out, that there's less of a need for it. We endured all of this in our life so that this generation could do what they are doing today. Let's be clear, LGBTQ folks still face discrimination every day. And that anti-sodomy law passed in 1805, it's still on the books. As recently as 2014, the state legislature voted not to remove it. Barrett DeLong of the crew of Arminius knows this all too well, but recognizes the rights he's gained as a gay man thanks to the sacrifices made by the people before him, like Lou and Fish and Diane. That's why he's committed to keeping his crew going, to honor the pioneers of gay rights in New Orleans. He says what was once mostly about survival is now about tradition. We had to change from being just a, a social club because we don't need that anymore. That's not a need of the community. We're a preservation society. We preserve what these men did because the show goes on. Which is also why Howard Smith wrote his book, 
because now... When people talk about the history of Carnival, they have to talk about Gay Carnival now because it's not just a paragraph or an, uh, you know, a mention in some of the history books. Here is this solid evidence that this was a force, you know, despite all the harassment, despite all of the social negativity for being gay. Here it is. You have to deal with it. From WWNL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Each year, Mardi Gras Indians greet the day on the city streets to sing and strut. This has been going on since the late 19th century. The call-and-response sounds of the Indians often carry the Congo beat, fundamental in New Orleans' musical fabric. The beloved Indian chief, Monk Boudreaux, has been masking Indian for more than 70 years. Last year, American Roots' Nick Spitzer visited him at home where he quietly sewed his new suit. Each year, Mardi Grandians greet the day on the city streets to sing and strut. This has been going on since the late 19th century. The call-and-response sounds of the Indians often carry the Congo beat, fundamental in New Orleans' musical fabric. The beloved Indian chief Monk Boudreaux has been masking Indian for more than 70 years. We visited him at home, where he quietly sewed his new suit. Working on one of my patches for the back of my boots. And I'm going to put some ruffles around it. Well, you get up at, what, 9 in the morning, stay up till maybe 2 at night, sometimes 3. All depends on how close it is and what you got to do. Like, sometimes stay up all night. So that morning till the break of dawn, that's the true saying, man. Because I be in here the night for Mardi Gras. I ain't never slept in, I don't know, about 40 years. Never went to bed the night for Mardi Gras. But you know the spirits carry you. So you don't feel sleepy, you don't feel tired until you take off that end of your seat. <laughs> the street is important because that's where we, you know, show off what we sit down for a whole year. And people are out there waiting to look to see what you did, you know, and they judge you and see, you know, if you're pretty. They got like hundreds of people outside my door just waiting to see how the big chief came out this year and always come out looking good. We're baby dolls and we're waiting for a big chief, Monk Boudreaux, to come out. As soon as he comes out, he's going to sing some songs to us and we're all going to follow him down the street. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, we, we're part of the Indian tribe. We, we are, we're the girls' version. You know, there's some, some of the girls are Indians, and, and we're, we're just the baby dolls. We travel along with the big chief. Back in the days, they had the baby dolls used to follow the Indians. That's why when they say they had 101, it wasn't 101 Indians, it was 101 with the baby dolls and the skeleton men and the moss men. And so I uh, sung a song about it. And so when they heard the song, they said, oh, Monk, I want to be a baby doll. Well, sure, you know, I have a lot of white friends. But what I have to do? Well, you have to dress like a baby doll. We're the Golden Eagles Moss Man. We spent three nights taking moss out of the golf course in Audubon Park, but don't tell the security there that. Now we can jump up in trees and jump down on people like they used to. I think about mostly what we going what we gonna do when we get like if I say we going downtown, we gonna meet everybody, we're gonna have a good time. If trouble come we ain't gonna run. But I don't borrow no trouble and I don't start no fight. Smiley grab morning and my head is tight. <laughs> and I got a grandson, he's like following my footsteps. You know, he's singing. You know, he gone on tour. Well, I'm teaching him, you know, how it go. Come here. Keep still. Keep still, boy. Go this way, like your grandpa. Indian! Oh, we got, we got half of one. Uh-oh, oh. That, it's about to happen now. I don't need no dark skies, I need fire. And you know, like this was hidden for like many years because a lot of people didn't know about it, only the, the uh, neighborhood people. And so we met Quint Davis and uh, he came to one hour practice and he said, uh, man, y'all making some music that nobody do in the world, you know. From that on, then the world started hearing about it. So people start coming to see the Indians, you know. For American Roots Shortcuts, I'm Nick Spitzer. WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Yes, Mardi Gras costumes are certainly impressive, but what about the wigs, beads, and the makeup? Over at the Bucare Hair Shop on Maple Street, Bill Saucé's family has been helping decorate Mardi Gras crews for generations. The shop was founded by his grandmother, Eugenie, in 1877. Back in 2017, the historic New Orleans collection's Mark Cave met with Bill to learn how his family's shop has kept Mardi Gras festival traditions alive for over 140 years. The conversation was produced by WWNO's Thomas Walsh. 
if you've never been backstage at a Mardi Gras ball, uh, it's, it's a real treat. It's a, it's a bunch of grown men getting into costume, feeling very uncomfortable, uh, most of them. <laughs> Uh, a lot of them wearing tights and all, and a lot of men outside of the comfort zone, but are doing their thing for the, because of the tradition and, and because of the, the family. My family and myself and all my siblings grew up required <laughs> to participate or to attend the carnival balls and parades as part of the makeup team. The younger kids, the, the teenagers, got the pleasure of, of uh, not the pleasure, but got the, the responsibility of doing makeup on the, on the pages. And uh, it, was, it was kind of fun, but it was a responsibility. It was, I had, at that time, I had to decide whether I was going to go in the family business or, or not. And it was, a, it was a difficult choice. But at one time, the, the family had about uh, maybe 45% of the, the Mardi Gras makeup business. The style that, that the Sosage did, both the, uh, at the carnival balls and the parades, is fairly standard. It's almost, it's almost stereotypical. Matter of fact, I look at that and I, I say, why don't we do something different? But the, the captains will say, this is what I want. One of the crew, Uncle Clarence, when he would be responsible for, for a particular makeup job, the first thing he would do would be take any mirrors in the room and turn them to the wall. He said, Bill, I do this because I know what is going to look good under those lights. They don't. He said, no. So he'd hide the mirrors. So he was sort of the arbiter of, uh, <laughs> of what, it, what it looked like. One thing is, as a high school student, came very clear is there was still a, a secrecy, a mystique, a mystery involved about the Carnival Cruise. No discussion of, of who the kings were or the captains. I thought it was sort of cute, but I realized that for a lot of people, it's not cute, it's important. It's an important part of the culture and, and the legacy. Within the retail shop, there's actually, this is back in the day and, and also currently, a king's room where the kings are afforded special attention, where the king comes in for consultation, for measurement, for sizing, for fittings. We make sure that the appointments are set so that two kings don't run into each other. They come in different days or different times. We never talk about who the person is. They're given privacy, secrecy. They can come in with their wife or, or, or whatever. But, uh, and it's sort, of, it's sort of a ritual, ritual thing. I still think it's strange, but we afford them that royalty treatment. The technical skills that they bring to bear on the Mardi Gras scene is pretty extensive and having a trained crew of, of over 18 people who can do these things they don't mess around they say look we know what we got to do just get out of my way and we'll, we'll we'll take care of it the craftsmanship the workmanship of of doing the makeup i think that's going to always be around I, I hope it's always in in the family it's a little bit cold but i got a rap for your soul and if somebody asks who i am tell them I'm the Mardi Gras man. Got to make it, shake it, do it good. Mardi Gras in your neighborhood. Got to make it, shake it, do it good. The town bound was playing that old tailgate song. All on a Mardi Gras day. That town bound was playing that old tailgate
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Special thanks to NPR's Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Monk Boudreaux, and Bill Sauce. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.